I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, if you would. For the last three Sundays, the last three weeks, we've been talking about the importance of faith in the life of a believer. And we've dealt with faith from three different perspectives. First of all, we talked about how important for us, how important it is for us as believers to understand that we can trust the Lord to meet our needs. He knows what we need before we ever ask Him. And He has promised to meet all of our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, which means that we can relax. We don't have to worry about where things are going to come from for us to be able to do what He wants us to do. Now, we have to be obedient and we have to be conscious of when the Lord does make... um, make provision for us and to take advantage of it, but we don't, we don't need to be overly anxious about what's going to happen down the road because we know that God's going to meet our need. We talk secondly about the benefit of faith in the sense that it helps us to overcome fears. Uh, we talked about the disciples being in the boat and the storm came and uh, the disciples were concerned because the Lord Jesus was just sleeping. The, the, I mean, it was the, the, water was, the boat was taking on water. The disciples were fearful for their lives, and they woke Jesus up. And they said, don't you care that we perish? And the truth is that Jesus, just by, by, by virtue of the fact that he was there, they were protected. There's no, no way that a storm is going to take out the creator of the universe. His presence is that which gives us security. And then we talked last Sunday about about our future. What happens down the road? Um, Absolute certainty for a believer comes as a result of our faith. But absolute certainty in the face of an uncertain future only comes when we're willing to remember that God has promised to order our steps. He's going to take care of what's yet to come. So God God will provide our need. God will help us to overcome all of our fears. God will will guide our steps so we'll be where he wants us to be if we're willing to yield to him and obey him. The fourth thing I want to share with you this morning is that, and this is maybe the most important, and this is that God will change us into what he wants us to be if we'll yield ourselves to him. Now, I want you to look in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we're going to begin reading verse number 11. I'm jumping in the middle of the chapter here. But, uh, but this, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians uh, deal with uh, doctrine, biblical principles. The second three deal with the practical aspects of how our, we, we as believers are to function, how church functions. And so look at beginning of verse 11, he says, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Now, that's the ultimate goal. We talk about faith all along. 
and, uh, and how our faith helps us as believers. How God is there to, to take care of anything that happens in our lives if we're willing to trust Him. But now we're talking about the ministry of the church and the ultimate goal of what we're doing here is that we will be united in our faith. Now faith here has to do with our belief, our, our, our conviction of the truth. So what the Bible says, we're supposed to believe. Now every, every preacher, every preacher has opinions about what the, what the Bible teaches. And, uh, and, and have you noticed that all preachers don't always agree? You know why that is? Because all preachers are not perfect. Um, I read this. Somebody, somebody put this out here. Uh, and, uh, and it's supposed to be an actual ad that came out of a Christian publication. And the top of the ad said, Wanted minister for growing church. And here's what this ad says. It's a little bit, little bit lengthy, but I want you to hear it. It says, it's a real challenge for the right man, an opportunity to become better acquainted with people. Applicant must offer experience as shop worker, office manager, educator, all levels, including college, artist, salesman, diplomat, writer, theologian, politician, boy scout leader, children's worker, minor league athlete, psychologist, vocational counselor, psychiatrist, funeral director, wedding consultant, master of ceremonies, circus clown, I've known a lot of preachers that were that, but uh, <laughs> circus clown, missionary, social worker. Now that's a long list. Um, it goes on. It says applicants should be everyone's friend, but cannot have close friends. I've known some preachers over the years that didn't want to get too close to the people because they had an image of what they were supposed to be and they did not want the people to find out that they didn't measure up to that image. But the truth is, every preacher's got feet of clay. And, uh, and, so, and it's not bad for the, for the people to know that. Um, anyway, he says he should be helpful but not essential. Experience as a butcher, baker, cowboy, Western Union messenger. He must know all about problems of birth, marriage, and death. Also um, uh, conversant with latest theories and practices in areas like pediatrics, economics, and nuclear science. The right man will hold firm views on every topic, but is careful not to upset people who disagree. That's a good trick. <laughs> must be forthright but flexible, returns criticism and backbiting with Christian love and forgiveness, should have outgoing, friendly disposition at all times, should be captivating speaker, but should not get upset if people can't remember what he spoke about only a week ago. He should be an instant and an intent listener. He will pretend that he enjoys listening to people talk. Education must be beyond PhD requirements but always concealed in homespun modesty and folksy talk. He must be able to sound learned at times, but most of the time talks and acts just like good old Joe. Familiar with literature read by the average congregation, must be willing to work long hours, subject to call any time, day or night, but not receive any overtime pay ever. Must be adaptable to sudden interruptions, 
will spend at least 25 hours preparing a sermon that people will forget in less than one hour. That's disheartening. 25 hours to get ready for something that you're going to walk out and forget about. Hopefully that's not always the case. Must spend an additional 10 hours reading books and magazines. Applicant's wife must be both stunning and plain. Smartly attired but conservative in appearance. Gracious and able to get along with everyone, especially women. Must be willing to work in the church kitchen, teach classes, babysit. Never listen to gossip and never become discouraged. Applicant's children must be exemplary in conduct and character, well-behaved, yet basically no different from other children and decently dressed. Opportunity, opportunity for applicant to live close to work. A home is provided. Open-door hospitality is enforced. Must be ever mindful that the house doesn't belong to him. Directly responsible for views and conduct of all chap- to all church members and visitors, not confined to direction or support from any one person, salary not commensurate with experience, education, or need. If, if all of these are qualifications, anyway. <laughs> all replies kept confidential. Apply, anyone applying will undergo a full investigation to determine their sanity. <laughs> and I guess that what that means is a guy have to be insane to take a job like that. I would ask how many of you are glad you have a pastor that fits all of those qualifications. Uh, Not many hands would go up because there are not many people like that around. But you know the sad thing is there are a lot of church people that almost think that that's true about, about the pastor. That it ought to be that way about the pastor. They have unrealistic expectations about what should be required of the preacher. The truth is preachers are humans and they have, they have faults, they, they make mistakes, they do their best, at, but, but, they're, but they're people who God uses to help us to gain an understanding of the truth of Scripture. Um, and no, but but no, no preacher has a corner on what's right. You know, Calvin, I, I, don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to Calvin. I don't pay a lot of attention to, uh, to theologians in general. I believe our job is to spend time in the book, and we get our theology from the book, and then we embrace that. And the truth is, all of us, everybody who's in this auditorium, everybody who's sitting at home watching, all of us are supposed to be working toward that same goal, and God will help us to get to the place where we have unity of faith. We believe, we're convicted of the same truth. That's important. And so that's, that's the, the, the idea. Now, we have the, um, the progress or the process. It says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The saints need to be mature. And maturity comes when we embrace the truth. If you look down um, in uh, verse number 13 again, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
So as we grow spiritually, we become more like the Son of God. God changes us into his image, and we become mature. And he goes on to explain what maturity is. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. One of the things that's true of a mature believer is he's going to be consistent in his faith. He's going to be consistent in his practice. He's going to be consistent in his attitude. He's going to know what he believes, and he's going to let that truth dictate what he does. Remember, we talked about three things. What you know, this is the heart. The heart, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what you know, what you do, and what you feel. What we do ought to be based primarily on what we know. What we know ought to dictate our practice. And, uh, and, 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 and Paul talks about that in a, moment, in a moment. But anyway, maturing of the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. And what is the work of the ministry? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. The work of the ministry. We've got a sign on the back of the, in the, on the wall in the fellowship hall. The work of the ministry is persuading men to be reconciled to God. That's our, our job. That's the job of us as believers and ability and, and, and uh, believers who are part of the body of Christ. We are to be perfected so that we can do the work of the ministry. We're to be mature so that we can, we can do the work of the ministry. And, um, and then he goes on and says it's for the edifying of the body of Christ. And it's a cycle. It's a cycle. Believers mature so they can do the work of the ministry so that they can build the body of Christ spiritually. And it's, and, and it's a self, uh, self-propagating uh, thing. So um, now let's look down and begin in verse 17. Here's the main thing I wanted to get to. Paul here deals with, with the heart. Notice what he says. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. Now notice what he says at the end of verse 18. It says, this happens... Because of the blindness of their heart. The most critical part of our growth as believers is the development of our heart. It's our heart being in tune with the will of God. It's a submissive attitude in our heart. It's, it's being sensitive to the Spirit of God and what he, wants, what he wants to do in our lives. Our heart is crucial. It is the core of our being. There's a reason why the Bible says that we need to work on our heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need God's direction in our heart. Paul says that there are Christians, there are believers, who walk are walking like Gentiles because of the blindness of their heart. Their, their heart does not see things correctly. 
And he mentions some very, very specific things here. Remember, the heart is the, the intellect, the will, the emotions. The intellect, what we know. The will, what we do. The emotions, how we feel. Paul addresses all three of them right here. Notice again in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth, or from now on, walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about what you know, the vanity of your mind. What do you know? What are you thinking? How do you think? Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's part of the transformation of our heart. When we yield our minds to the Lord, what we know, making sure what we think is right. Paul says that the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now, that word vanity can mean emptiness, something as vain as empty, but it also means pride. It also means selfishness. When you, um, you know, we... Uh, there was an episode of, of uh, the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, you probably don't watch the Andy Griffith Show anymore, but I, I like it, and we watch it often. And there's an episode of the, the Andy Griffith Show where, where Andy gets a haircut. I need one right now, but, uh, you know, the barbershop's been closed. I just got message Friday, I think it was, that where I normally go is open again, so I can get a haircut now. But anyway... He went and got a haircut because he was going to dance. And, 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 and Opie asked him, why did you get a haircut? Well, he said, it, it has to do with vanity. And he said, Aunt B's dressing table? The dressing table is a vanity because it's the place where you sit to put on your makeup and to get yourself looking better because you want, you're, you're concerned about your appearance. That's vanity. It has to do with your self-image. And a desire to look nice. That's pride. And so if they're walking in the vanity of their mind, they're walking in self-pride. They're walking according to their own desires. If you, if you go on, verse 19 says, Who being fast, past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So the point is, they're doing things based on what they know, which is what they want. They're not, they're not, they're not concerned about what, what the Bible says. The Gentiles are concerned about what they want. They're thinking, what I want. So they're doing based on what they, what they want. So uh, don't walk that way. Don't do those things. Don't get involved in those things. But then there's, there's one other thing here. Verse 19 he says, these folks are past feeling. The blindness of their heart has made it so that they don't sense the conviction of God's Spirit. Um, when we do wrong, things get a little more difficult for us to do right. Every time we give in to a temptation then it becomes harder the next time to avoid it. Because we give in and something terrible doesn't happen, 
well, maybe I can, maybe I can do it again. It, it won't bother me. And the Bible talks about the fact that when we do that often enough, we get to the place where our conscience is not so responsive. We get past feeling. Have you ever wondered how people can sit week after week in church services and they may be involved in something that is not good, maybe, maybe something they shouldn't be doing, and they hear the Word of God preached and, and, and you feel the conviction of the Spirit about that particular item, but you look around and these, these people, they don't, doesn't seem to bother them at, at all. They go to do what they're going to do and they keep doing it and they keep doing it and they keep doing it in spite of the fact that the Bible says they're not supposed to. Why does that happen? It's because they have gotten to the place where they don't sense the conviction of God's Spirit. So Paul goes on and says, here's how we fix that. Notice beginning in, in, in verse, number, um, verse number 23, he deals first of all with our thinking, what we know. It says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Make sure that you are paying attention to what God says about how we're supposed to think. If you go to the book of, of Philippians, it says that we're supposed to think about specific things. It says, for whatsoever things are pure, honest, lovely. Uh, um, uh, hang on. I'm getting older. I used to be able to quote that. Yeah, yeah. What sort of things are lovely, uh, excuse me, honest, true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. The Bible says that's what we're supposed to think about. We dwell on things that are hurting us spiritually, and our heart becomes blinded because of those things. Paul says we need to be careful to make sure that we are, have a renewed mind. Notice secondly, he says, Verse number 24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. First, he deals with what you know. Secondly, he deals with what you do. Put on the new man. Um, earlier said, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. But now put on the new man. And in doing so, we put away lying. We speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Now, lying is a word that we use uh, to condemn those who are telling something or saying something that's not true. We as believers should never do that. We should not lie. We should not be deceptive. Uh, preachers should not enhance the truth to be able to make a point. You ever hear a preacher tells a story and it sounds too fantastic to be true? Easy to do that, because the more you enhance it, the more power it's going to have, or at least that's what we think. And we don't even stop to think about the fact we're violating what God says we're supposed to do. But it's not just preachers. And I said earlier, preachers are humans and they make mistakes. But you know, you folks, uh, you know, it, it applies to all of us. J. Vernon McGee, I've shared this with our people. I don't know if you've, the folks from Victory have heard this or not. But J. Vernon McGee used to say, you know what? If you knew everything there was, new, there was to know about me, you wouldn't come listen to me preach. 
But then he said, but before you get too excited, just remember that if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't waste my time on you. <laughs> That's the way it is for every preacher. That's the way it is for every church situation. You don't know everything there is to know about me. I don't know everything there is to know about you. But you know who does know everything that is to know about all of us? It's the Lord. And the Spirit of God wants to help us with those things. But we've got to be sensitive to His Spirit. We've got to, we've got to be listening to Him. Lying is one of those things that is a, a sin that we often commit and don't think anything about it because it has been so minimized in our thinking as to be of no concern. Little white lies they talk about. Embellishing the truth a little bit for the sake of making the point. Um, um, saying something in a specific way so that we don't communicate the whole truth because the whole truth might incriminate us, might make us look bad. So we're going to say something in such a way that it doesn't make us look so bad. Paul says, Paul says there are little things like that that we as believers need to be careful about if our heart's going to be right and if God's going to be able to change us into what he wants us to be. Notice the next thing he says. Speak every man truth to his neighbor. We are members one of another. And he says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It's easy to get upset about offenses. It's easy to get angry about different things that happen. Circumstances that you can't control. Situations that you would like to be different, but you can't do anything about it. And other people who ought to know better who do things and say things. All of that can cause us to be, we can, we can get short in our temper, and we can say things we shouldn't say, and it creates problems, and it doesn't please the Lord. Anger, we'll get to that a little more in just a moment. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. It says that we're not to put, uh, uh, we have to be careful not to put ourselves in a position where we're going to be tempted by the devil. It's one thing to say I'm not going to do something. It's another thing to make sure we stay out of a situation where we might be tempted. Uh, stay away from temptation. Flee youthful lust, the Bible says. For there, there are a lot, of, a lot of older preachers that need to be fleeing elderly lust. Because it, it, it's not just young people. It goes up the scale. Uh, don't give place to the devil. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands. And it goes on. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying them may minister grace unto the hearers. We live in a society where it's considered a great uh, character trait. It's, it's something to be admired if you can say something uh, boldly enough and cutting enough to put somebody in their place, even though it may hurt them severely. That's not a good thing. Teenagers today grow up with the mindset that, uh, that it's, it's a, it, it builds who you are. It makes people think highly of you. If you can really be cutting in, in what you say. Sarcasm is used uh, widely. And, that, and those, that, that's, that's never a good thing. But then he goes on, verse 30, and says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed under the, under the day of redemption. And then he deals with emotions. 
He's dealt with our thinking, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He's dealt with our actions, be careful mainly what you talk about is what he's dealing with here. But then he comes to the third thing, and this has to do with our emotions. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I said earlier, we're supposed to think about things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. All of those things, that's how we're supposed to think. Well, the things that we're supposed to avoid with regard to our emotions are bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Those things should not be a part of the attitude of a believer. We get in trouble when we do those things. It's because we are driven by what we feel. And our feelings end up being driven by our human emotions, which are not controlled by the Spirit of God. That's the way it is if your heart is blinded. You, you, you react rather than responding. Uh, any of you have a bad temper? You have a, a hot temper? You can't, no? Raise your hand. <laughs> Not good to raise your hand on that. No, um, um, we talk about losing our temper. You lose your temper ever? We lose our temper, right? Lose our temper. Losing your temper implies what? That you can't control it. But that's not true. It's not true. We can control our temper if we're motivated well enough. And I've told this story before, but there's a preacher I know that was sitting at a red light, and he had a concealed carry gun permit, you know, and, uh, and he was looking across the way while he was waiting on the red light, and there were some, a couple of tough-looking guys sitting in a car over there, and one of them looked at him, and he thought he was looking, you know, you know how that is. You, you see somebody look your way, and then they say something to somebody, and they laugh, and you're hey, talking about me. And you don't know who they are, and they don't know you, but you build a case in your mind for the fact they're making fun of you. Well, this guy would just assume that this preacher was saying something to him or saying, thinking something about him, and, and he looked over and said, what's your problem? And the preacher said, I'm not, I'm just sitting here, I'm not, well, you're looking at me. Well, no, I wasn't looking at you. I was looking that direction. But I, and the guy got out of his car and started over to him with a baseball bat. And he was, he was determined he was going to let him have it. And the preacher reached over on the seat where he had his, I don't remember, 32 caliber pistol or something. I don't know what it was. But he reached over and he picked that up and he put it on the windowsill of the door. And you know what? That guy with a baseball bat got control of his temper real quick. <laughs> you can control it. You can, we don't have to lose it. We don't have justification for saying, I've just got a hot temper and I can't help it. I'm sorry. We can't help it. We have to let the Spirit of God help us, but we can help it. We don't have to do those things. And it's true with all of this. We don't have to be bitter. Our heart doesn't have to be filled with bitterness. It, it shouldn't be filled with wrath. It's 
Anger doesn't need to be a part of how we live. Clamor, evil speaking, all those things should be gone. Well, but you say, well, preacher, it's just hard for me to be able to get over it. Somebody hurt me, and I'm having a hard time with the bitterness. Let me tell you how to get over it. Paul addresses it very clearly. Look at verse number 32. He says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, and here's the, the important word, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. You know, the greatest character trait in the heart of a believer who knows the Lord and is submitted to Him is the fact that He is able to forgive. It's hard to understand. I, I, I understand because we are made of flesh. But it's hard for us, it, it should be hard for us to understand that other people should be granted the same kind of grace that God has granted us. I am so thankful, I've said this many times, and I know you've thought it too, I am grateful that my neighbor is not God. Why? Because I'd be in big trouble. I'm grateful that some church members are not God because I would not be forgiven. Now you say, but wait a minute, preacher. Some of those people, they've done things that are offensive, but they, but they, haven't, had, they haven't sought forgiveness. Do you understand that granting forgiveness is not about what they get? It's about what happens in your heart. Being unforgiving will cause you pain. It will keep you in bondage. It'll keep you from being a, an effective servant for Christ. Whether they get forgiven or not. Remember Jesus hanging on the cross, what he said to, about those who were, who were crucifying him? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prayed for forgiveness for those people who were crucified. Does Jesus' prayer not go, go unanswered? No. Did the people who were down below, did they get, did they get forgiven? Not unless they received it. They went on about what they were doing. There's no evidence that they received forgiveness, but Jesus was praying that it be granted for them. You grant forgiveness in your heart, and then don't worry about whether or not they receive it. You want them to receive it, and you want them to benefit from it. But whether they do or not, you are better off for being willing to, to forgive those who have offended you. That's a hard thing to do. I understand that. But I'm grateful that my God, though it was a hard thing to do, was willing to do what was necessary to be able to grant that forgiveness. How does God change us? He changes us as we yield our heart to Him. And that requires our faith. It'll change how we think. That is what we know. It'll change how we act. That's what we do. It'll change how we feel, which has to do with our emotions. All of that is a part of it. God knows our needs. He's going to supply them. God knows our fears. He's going to help us overcome them. 
God knows our future, and he's going to guide our steps to get there. And he knows our frame. He remembers that we're flesh. And he's going to help us to get beyond that. All of that, all of them require faith. It requires us being willing to trust him to do what he wants to do in our lives and us having a yielded heart. May God help us to walk by faith, which means trusting him in every situation, including getting past those emotions and, and, and the wrong thinking and the wrong actions that keep us from being what God wants us to be. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed.